It's so good to see you. How are you? Good. Any Niners fans here today? Okay. Any Chiefs fans here today? Anybody, any Taylor Swift fans here today? There it is. That's exactly what I assume. <laughs> Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, there, there's probably a hard hardback black one in front of you in the pews, or if you brought one from home, go ahead and open it to Matthew 22. Um, we're going to get there in just a second. Um, this is going to be my last sermon for a little while. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I am, if you guys have seen my lovely wife walking around, um, She's walking around because she's trying to get this baby out of her. Uh, our due date is this week, so um, uh, we're going to be going on some leave uh, as, as soon as this little, little girl shows up. Um, feel free to walk up to my wife and start praying in tongues over her stomach. We want this baby out. I want it out. Let's go. Let's get this going, okay? Um, anyway, you guys are going to be in good hands while I'm away. It's going to be fantastic, but let's, let's get this baby out. All right. Today, we are wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last uh, several weeks, um, which is loosely based off of a book by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. How many of you guys have picked up that book and started reading it? Like a handful? Okay, great. Um, wonderful book. And um, basically, we are taking these weeks to talk about a, a concept called spiritual formation, which is simply the method and means by which that we become more and more like Jesus as we follow him over the course of our lifetime. How do we transform to become more like Jesus? But we've been zeroing in specifically on one area of formation that's often overlooked in church world, which is our emotional health. Uh, in his book, Schizero writes this. He says, despite all the emphasis today on spiritual formation, church leaders rarely address what spiritual maturity looks like as it relates to emotional health. For this reason, our churches are filled with people who remain emotionally unaware and socially immature. The link between emotional health and spiritual maturity is a large, unexplored area of discipleship. And in my experience, that's really true. I've grown up in church world, and the churches that I have been a part of are usually deficient when it comes to addressing areas of our emotional health, particularly when it comes to thinking about limits or grief and loss, things like that. And so because of this, the best case scenario is that Christians will take these issues to professionals, counselors, and therapists. And trust me, that is a wonderful thing to do. Uh, I think that it is important that we embrace therapy and counseling and that we welcome the expertise of these professionals in our community. And we actually have quite a number of mental health professionals in our church. But it's more common that Christians simply bury or ignore their emotional health. And so here at the Vineyard, we believe that these elements of emotional health are crucial for our spiritual formational practices in the church. So a few weeks ago, we kicked off the series by talking about the importance of interior examination, about how we need to look beneath the surface, that our, that our lives are like an iceberg, and only 10% of an iceberg exists above the water, the, the surface of the water. The rest, the other 90%, is actually hidden beneath the surface. 
And so for us to become emotionally mature, we need to learn to explore what is under the surface of our lives. And so then we talked about vulnerability and brokenness and the importance of living in that, in that space. Wes brought such an important sermon about the importance of welcoming grief in our lives. And then, of course, Jace taught uh, last week about the power of receiving our limits as a gift. And this morning's message as we land the plane is so, so simple, but I think really important. Because what we're going to talk about today is what is the end goal of our emotional formation? Or really, what is the end goal of all of our spiritual formation? And it's not, it's not that we would go deeper and deeper into the labyrinth of our feelings until we become totally consumed by ourselves. No, the goal of formation is that we would become people of love. A few weeks ago, John Mark Comer wrote this in Christianity Today. He said, if you had to summarize Christ-like character in one word, there would be no competition. Love. Love is the acid test of spiritual formation. The single most important question is, are we becoming more loving? Not, are we becoming more biblically educated or practicing more spiritual disciplines or more involved in church? Those are all good things, but not the most important thing. If you want to chart your progress on the spiritual journey, test the quality of your closest relationships. I love this quote. That love is the acid test of spiritual formation. So the journey toward emotional health or spiritual formation or character development, it doesn't end in a self-focus. Rather, as we journey inward and we look at the root of what's going on in our lives underneath the surface, the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us or the lies that we have believed or the grief that we have bottled, as we go on that journey, we will come out the other side bearing the fruit of love. And so in Matthew 22, Jesus had this interaction with one of the teachers of the law where this teacher was trying to, was asking a question. He was actually trying to trap Jesus, but he was asking the question of what is the most important thing for me as I'm following God? And, and let, let's, read that, uh, let's read that story in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so when, when Jesus was asked to boil this whole book, the whole Bible, down into like one thing, Jesus says it all comes down to love. He's teaching us that we exist, the purpose of our existence is to give all of our love to God, who, who is first giving it to us, and then to allow that love to pour out from us over everyone and everything else. And in Greek, there are four words for love. Uh, each depicting a different kind of human love. And the love that's described here is the word agape, which is to will the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost or the sacrifice that it may require. In other words, agape, agape it's a God love. It's a love that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself, which is a beautiful and compelling command, right? 
Like, who wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody takes seriously the invitation to express the deepest parts of their humanity towards other people through self-giving love? And for a lot of my life, I, I think that I kind of tried to do this. I've, I've always wanted to be a loving person. I've, I've tried, but, but I found that in various seasons, I've tried to really do this love thing in my own strength. But here's the thing that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me through the process of this series. And as I've been waiting on God and asking him to examine some of the depths of my soul, is that this command to love God with everything that you have, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, this is not something that we are commanded to live out and muster up and do in our own strength. It's not a command that we need to try to accomplish or practice. No, this God love is not something that we are commanded to do. It's something that we are invited to become. It's something that we are formed into. Several years ago, um, before Carly and I had kids, we uh, bought a house uh, kind of in the downtown neighborhoods over here, not far from, from here. And it was this beautiful craftsman home on sort of the outer edge of the neighborhood. Um, its location was kind of this strange intersection where on one hand it felt like we were in this affluent, like older bungalow area of the neighborhood. And at the same time, we were kind of parked right in this like lower working class, poor area of the neighborhood. And, and, um, and it was just sort of like a collision right where, we, right where we lived. And so we constantly had our houseless neighbors sleeping in their cars right outside of our home. And I loved it, mostly, for a while. <laughs> um, I mean, when we moved in, we were excited. We're on mission. This is like our neighborhood. We're going to love our neighbors. And so we were determined to love our hardest to love neighbors. I was going to be like Jesus. I was going to serve people who were struggling, whether they were people who lived in, the, in the, the, the fourplex across the street who were struggling or people who were living in their cars. And so we would make extra dinner from time to time. We would take, take plates of food out to the people who were hungry or we'd do laundry for them in our house or we'd invite them to take a shower. Um, at one point, we actually had someone live in our basement for, with us for a few weeks. But you can only do love like that in your own strength for so long. And what I was not attending to was actually experiencing God's love in a way that was going to work itself out towards other people. So over the course of a couple of years, my patience, it started to drop off. Um, my passion and my energy and my desire to serve began to calcify into frustration and anger and annoyance. In short, I burned out. I had nothing left in the tank to be able to offer other people. I couldn't do agape. And after reflecting on it, what I came to realize is that in that season, there was a formation deficit for me. I couldn't do agape because I wasn't learning to become a person of love. And I'm encouraged by the fact that one of Jesus' disciples went on a similar journey to me. When Jesus called his disciples, he called one of them uh, a young man named John. And John, um, he had a nickname when he was first called as a disciple. He was called the Son of Thunder, which is an epic name if you're a professional wrestler, <laughs> right? Um, but not like the most ideal name for somebody who was eventually going to be a leader in the church. You see, John had a violent personality. 
In fact, at one point, he was so angry at a group of people in a town that they were walking through that he, he told Jesus to call down fire to wipe out the city. <laughs> he was that mad. Um, not off to a great start. But over time, as he spent time with Jesus, and as he learned the way of Jesus, we see that his personality began to change. We actually begin to see that his identity began to change. Being with Jesus sort of made the thunder edge of him soften. And at the twilight of his life, in his oldest years, he was known by a different nickname. He was known as the Apostle of Love, which is also an epic nickname. Maybe like a cult leader. I don't know. If you hear somebody referred to as the Apostle of Love, you might want to like walk away. And so when he wrote this biography of Jesus, he, he even described himself. His identity was, I am the one that is loved by Jesus. His, ide his identity shifted from the son of thunder to the beloved. And in 1 John, which we believe he wrote in his 90s, he describes the essence or nature of God like this. He says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Another way of saying it is that the, the, the love of God is the foundation, it is the crutch, it is the thing that carries us forward. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. The essence, the nature of God is agape which is a radical statement and a great mystery because here what he's doing, he's pointing us to a reality of the Trinity. For God to be love must mean that he has to exist in relationship. God is a relationship, and at the heart of this relationship is bottomless, eternal agape, love that is poured out selflessly and generously and abundantly and joyfully and even sacrificially to each of the three members of the Trinity forever. But it goes on, it goes beyond that. It says that we were created by that Trinitarian relationship of love to become both recipients and givers of love in relationship with God. And that even more than that, we are called or commanded to mirror this agape beyond ourselves into the world, loving as we have been loved. And so this is the great profound mystery of the Christian life, that we receive this agape love of God, and then we reflect it back to him, and he reflects it back to us, and it spills beyond us into the lives of everyone around us, towards one another here in the church, toward our family and our friends, toward those who are far from God, even to our, our enemies. And this expression of love, this is the litmus test of our Christ-likeness. This is the measure of our spiritual maturity. Our Christian maturity will never be measured based on how often we read our Bible or how frequently we attend church or whether we're doing enough church activity or whether we're giving enough money to the poor or whether we've shared our faith with enough friends and neighbors. No, the only measure of your spiritual maturity that matters before God is this, love, love. And the only way for us to grow into becoming the people of love is to begin with God. We can only love as we learn to receive 
God's love first. Eddie was talking earlier when we were doing communion about this, this amazing few chapters right before Jesus goes to the cross while he's sharing a meal with his friends. And, and one of those uh, chapters is in John chapter 15. This is what Jesus says to his friends and followers. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. Now, I know that if you've been in church world for very long, like you've probably heard that verse a million times, or maybe you've read it a whole bunch of times, but like pause and take 15 seconds with that for a second. Like just think about it. As the Father has loved Jesus eternally, unconditionally, fully, abundantly, that is the way that Jesus loves you. The agape love that is endlessly poured out between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is being endlessly and bottomlessly poured out on you. And all you are asked to do is to live, to abide, to dwell, to remain in this love. The only way for us to become people of love is to learn to dwell in God's love. In the language of Psalm 91, it's dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty and abiding in the, or sorry, dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. Or in the poetry of Psalm 84, it's the joy of dwelling in the house of God, ever praising him, reciprocating his glory back to him. It's what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, sorry, I can't talk. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, contemplating or beholding God in prayer, holding his love before our attention each day. It's the practice of gazing into God, gazing into us, gazing back into him. You were made to live in, in the love of the Father. You were created with a capacity to experience God's love for you. And I'm convinced that the root of every deficit in my life, in my apprenticeship to Jesus, begins with a disconnect with the love of God. This is the essence of my sin and brokenness. Every, every area of weakness in my life flows from disordered love, from my distrust or disregard or disbelief for God's love for me, and from my dis disordered love and desires toward the rest of creation. But the beginning point of repair or salvation has to start with returning to the heart of the Father. As the Father has loved Jesus, so he loves you. Now learn to relax into his love. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite guides on the spiritual journey, and he wrote this. Every time you listen with great attentiveness to the voice that calls you the beloved, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It's like discovering a well in the desert. Once you, once you have touched wet ground, you want to dig deeper. And so if you're coming in here this morning, like I, I, I see that there's a number of people who I have never met before. You're, maybe this is your first time here. And if you're coming in here feeling tired or dry or like parched, cracked ground, I want to share this amazing news with you. God loves you. 
He loves you so much. He has orchestrated everything in your life to bring you to this moment just to hear some guy on the stage say, he calls you the beloved. And you may hear those words and the tiniest spark comes alive in your soul or it may sound like the faintest whisper to you. But God's invitation is beckoning you deeper into his heart of love. He loves you. He desires you. He created you to find your soul's deepest satisfaction and rest in the identity of being his beloved. My friends, every single one of us today is being called deeper into the love of God. But this love was not meant to terminate on you. It's meant to flow from God to you and through you to a world in desperate need of agape. In the same set of teachings uh, in John, just before the cross, Jesus says this to his friends. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So notice the flow here. As the Father loved Jesus, that's how he loves you. And as Jesus has loved us, that is how we are to love each other. And that the world will be able to recognize us by the way that we love one another. In a world full of selfish ambition, where people devour each other, God's people are meant to reflect the bottomless, self-giving love of the Trinity. That God's people would will the good of another through sacrificial blessing. The world will recognize us, church, by our love. And this begs the question, like a very simple question. Okay, then how did Jesus love? What is the, how does the Bible describe the actions of Jesus worked out in love? And that comes back to one word, incarnation. You thought I was going to say the cross, didn't you? In John 3.16, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, uh, it says that God so loved the world that he sent his son to come and dwell among people so that everyone who believes in him would have life in relationship with him forever. Or in 1 John 4, there's a lot of John in this one. 1 John 4, this is what he says. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God's love was expressed to us by Jesus being born as a human and living among us. In Eugene Peterson's translation of the first chapter of John, he says that the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. The theological word for this is incarnation, which means in flesh. See, Jesus didn't stay off at a distance, on a throne, somewhere out there, occasionally sending a message through one of his messengers to us to help us live a little bit better. No, he drew near. He came to meet us right where we are and to love us in the thick of our issues. And so in the Gospels, Jesus ate with people, sitting around a table and sharing his life. Jesus physically touched people who were sick or hurt and they were made well. Jesus drew close enough to breathe on people. He was not a guru on a mountain doling out spiritual wisdom to anybody who stopped by. No, he was a friend and a brother with relationships and availed himself to other people. And this is the manner of love that we are meant to have for each other, friends. 
Love can only exist in relationship with other people. It has to flow from us to another. And our love is meant to be incarnate in the flesh. We want to follow Jesus' example of entering into another person's world. We show up to each other and are present with each other. We tend to our relationships instead of getting lost in our own worlds. We have coffee with people and we don't put our cell phone on the table while we're talking to them. We look each other in the eye. We listen to each other's stories. We cry with each other when there is tragedy and we laugh with each other in joy. We share meals and we attend weddings and we give graduation cards and we bring dinner when a baby is born. <laughs> we celebrate together and we mourn together. We share the wide spectrum of human experience we call life by being present with each other. We love in the flesh. We love with our presence, physically and emotionally. Um, in Luke chapter 12, we read another story, just like the one from Matthew 22, of, of a teacher of the law who came to test Jesus. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Good job, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. So he gets it. This time, the guy answered his own question. Yeah, okay, I'll just do the love God and love other people thing. And Jesus says, sweet, go do that, but keep reading. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? In, rep in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when, and when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the ethnic enemy, the other, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two coins and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, he's an expert here, the one who had mercy on him, I guess. That's what a law degree will get you. <laughs> Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the famous story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, our, our culture knows the expression Good Samaritan, even if they don't know this story. And the expert in the law, he was asking this question, who is my neighbor, looking for a way to justify himself. But notice that Jesus doesn't answer that question. He answers a different question. Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is your neighbor? Jesus answers the question, who was the neighbor? 
The main idea of this story, it really is about God's love that transcends religious and ethnic barriers, extending way beyond our kin all the way to our enemies. But I want to highlight in this story this morning is the way that the Samaritan man loved the man who was robbed on the road. He showed up for him. He was physically and emotionally present. You see, the priest and the Levite, these religious professionals, they were too busy to stop for the suffering man. They had responsibilities to attend to, and and stopping for this person would be a massive interruption. In fact, according to the Old Testament law, if this guy was dead or if he died while they were taking care of him, they would become ceremonially unclean, and they couldn't do their job. So they had to just leave him alone, probably pulling out their phone, pretending they didn't see him as they walked by. But the person of love was the one who oriented his life around the care and blessing of others. He was the neighbor. And this is who we want to become. This is the aim of all of our spiritual formation. Not just doing love from time to time. We need to become people of love who are present to others. Who are in the flesh in front of people. And we do this in relationships. We follow Jesus in loving others by committing ourselves in relationship in the world. By committing ourselves in relationship in our families and among our friends. By committing ourselves in relationship here in this church community that we're a part of so we can practice what it means to be, to, to, to love one another. And to be in relationship with those who are in our community. Who God has put us, who, who God has put us in this community to love and serve. And so we show up. We show up to our life group week after week. We open our home to someone new and have dinner with them. We meet up for a cup of coffee before, before work. We carve out a Saturday morning to be able to help someone move. We hold someone in emotional safety by listening to them and being with them. The measure of our spiritual maturity is all about love. We cannot grow spiritually mature outside of relationship with other people. So who is God calling you to love like Jesus did in the flesh? Who do you need to show up for? Who has God given you that you can express vulnerability and openness to them and that you can be a place of safety to them as well. I want to become that kind of church. Like, I don't have a program or three easy steps, but I think that we can, like, just in this room, we can just commit to each other that we want to become people of love, right? And then we can just practice it with each other. And we can just, like, grow in it a little bit each day. Like, we're, we are not perfect at this. And it is really easy for us to just kind of week after week show up, do our thing, disappear, smile, give a thumbs up, and feel like we're loving. But I think that Jesus wants to take us to sort of like the next level. I think we need to do it together. So join a life group. (laughs) It's a big application. Invite someone over for the Super Bowl. Call a friend that you haven't talked to in, in a few months. Notice the person that is sitting alone and meet them. This is who we want to become. Let's become people of love. Can you pray with me?
Jesus, we stand in awe of you. God, when we look at the way that you lived, the way that you gave of yourself, the way that you cared about other people, when we consider the way that you sacrificed and that you had time to be able to hold space with people, I just, we just confess, Lord. I confess. I, Marshall confesses that, God, I have filled my life with too many things that are hindering me in growing in the way of love. And Lord, I pray that you would, that you would, you would reorient us again towards that bullseye. Reorient us again towards the first and greatest commandment of loving you with everything that we have and loving others as ourselves. And I pray, Lord, you would bring this church, this community, on a journey of becoming people who love more because we desperately want to be like here in Vancouver. We want to be right here in Vancouver and for all of our uh, neighbors and the people around us to be like, yeah, look at that. That's, that's that Jesus thing that we hear so much about. Look at how they love each other. Look at how they love. Bring us on the journey, God.